0: Thank you, it's a privilege to uh, get to share with you, and uh, you know, you never know what to talk about, you never know uh, where the Lord's going to lead you, Uh, Wednesday nights are always different, Uh, and I thought it was so ironic that we thought last week was going to have terrible weather, so we canceled church, and now it's raining and we're here, and uh, some of you knew that I was going to speak, and you came anyway, and I appreciate that so much for braving the rain and coming out, and... uh, What a privilege it is to be able to share with uh, Pastor Joe and Missy being here. Uh, I thought maybe the Lord might allow me to share most of my testimony, and I think he's saved that for another time if it ever arrives. And so we're going to go to Philippians chapter 2. But uh, just real quickly to share a little bit about me, I guess. I've been in full-time ministry for 25 years. Uh, as, As Pastor said, I come from a family of ministers, about 20 years ago, my grandmother on my dad's side passed away. We went to the funeral, and my cousin was leading the funeral, and he said, I want all the full-time pastors to come and stand on the platform as we pray. And eight full-time pastors from my grandmother's side, straight from her, straight from her uh, was stood on the platform, so there's a lot of pastors that come from my family. And uh, of all of them, uh, they're preachers, and I'm just whatever needs to be done kind of thing, you know. Uh, and so I'm here tonight uh, ready to share with you a little bit about Pastor Joe. Seven years ago, I went through a terrible divorce, and it, I mean, it just wrecked me. And I was very depressed, very suicidal, and I won't get into all of it, but I sat in a room with Pastor Joe, and I don't know if he remembers this or not, but it really spoke to me, to the kind of pastor that you have, and how much I appreciate that. I said, Pastor. I don't know if anybody's ever going to want to hire me again after this. I don't know if anybody is ever going to use me again after this. And he didn't know that I would be here. I didn't know that I'd be here seven years later. I've been to several of the churches since that time. And he looked at me and he said, Keith, God's got something for you. And uh, I'm the kind of guy that would look for somebody like you. You do what God's called you to do. Let God lead you. And uh, there's something for you. And he spoke volumes to me on that day in that room. And I appreciate that so much. So we're going to Philippians chapter 2, and I love the letter to the church of Philippi. I love 2nd Philippians, and there's so many memorable verses. There's so many things that just jump out at you when you think of the letter to the Philippians, and let's just uh, go uh, real quickly through some of those, and I'm going to start them, and you can finish them. And I'm just going to tell you right off the bat that uh, I memorize in the King James Version, and I study in the NIV. And then a few years later, they changed it, and the NIV has changed again. So I'm still in the 84 edition when it comes to studying, and so there I am. But you could go to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, and it says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, you could finish that out, right? That's a memorable one. Chapter 2, verse 10 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Chapter 3 says that I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sharing, the sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Chapter 4 says rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. Chapter 4 also says, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. For God, your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It tells us how to think whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, or depending on whatever version you've got. When we get to the end of it, it says, think, meditate on these things. Verse 4 also says, And my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory By Christ Jesus, so many memorable verses, and we haven't even gotten to my favorite one yet. But uh, as I said, we'll throw some scriptures up there in the eighty-four edition. I know that uh, Pastor, and for good reason, uses the King James New King James Version quite often. I've noticed since we've been here, but uh, I, I. I have to tell you, it's kind of hard for me sometimes. It's been a while since I actually preached in this format or actually talked in this format. Usually when I minister, I'm behind a keyboard or behind a puppet stage or in front of a puppet stage. I mean, it's been a while since I've gotten to do it like this, and so I appreciate that. Verse 5 says this, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. There's a few things that I want to compliment this church on since Michael and I have been coming here. Uh, And so when I'm sharing with you tonight about the attitude of Christ Jesus, I I don't want it to be an admonishment. I want it to be an encouragement because I admire so many things that are going on in this church. I admire the unity that you have here. And pastor has shared with us some of the voting things that you've had the churches voted on and you voted 100 percent. And you don't find that in other churches. And so I admire the unity. I admire the focus that you have in wanting to move forward and do something for the Lord. I greatly admire the, the atmosphere of prayer. People actually come to prayer meetings here. I've been at churches and worked at churches where the only people that came to prayer meetings were the staff. And not only do people come, but you have three times that people come, and they're well attended, and I admire that, and I appreciate that. I admire the, the focus of your pastor and the leadership and the staff and the church's desire to strive to have an attitude and the mindset of Christ. I appreciate that. And so I want to encourage you in that. So having grown up in ministry and in kids' ministry and youth and music, uh, quite often when we're doing a kid's crusade or a kid's jam, we have a certain puppet, and he's a big, hairy, yellow, fuzzball of a guy, and his name is Slick. And uh, every now and then he'll come out, and usually it's to introduce the power verse. And uh, the power verse is usually in code in some way or some form, and so Slick has to try to figure out the code of the power verse. And Slick is not the brightest puppet in the suitcase. And so he has a hard time getting it out. And he tries so hard. And before it's all over with, he's got it all wrong. And the kids are cracking up. And everybody's having a good time except for Slick. And he begins to cry. And he puts his hand on his head. And he says, Slick needs help. And all the kids go Slick, Now, by this time they know, but, you know if, especially if you've seen it one time, you know that Slick's about to say Slick needs help. And so all the kids help Slick, and finally they figure out the power verse together, and Slick leaves the uh, puppet stage that night a happy puppet, and the kids have learned what the power verse is. But the reality is, not only does Slick need help, it's just an illustration. People need help. People need help help. Just a few illustrations uh, came across. There was a man, a uh, famous composer, famous piano player, and also the prime minister of Poland about a hundred years ago, uh, Jean Paderewski. And uh, story goes like this. Early in life, when John was to leave his native Poland to play his first recital in London, he asked an influential friend to give him a letter of introduction to a leading figure in Britain's musical world who might be of assistance should he need some help. The letter was handed to him in a sealed envelope. He hoped that everything would proceed smoothly and he would have no use of the letter. And indeed, he did not need it. His debut was a success with no snags. Many years later, after he has become well-known and he's famous while going through his papers, he came upon the letter and he finally opened it and it read... This will introduce Jean Pederewski, who plays the piano, for which he demonstrates no conspicuous talent whatsoever. It's like, "Thanks for the help. Thanks for the help." So some real modern-day stories, a reporter in San Bernardino, California, arranged for a man to lie in the gutter on a busy street. Hundreds of people passed the man, but not one stopped to help him or even show sympathy. News outlets across the country a few years ago told how 38 people watched a man stalk a young woman and finally attack her, and none of those people even picked up the cell phone to call police. A couple of teenagers in Detroit discovered a woman on the street who had seemingly suffered a heart attack. They carried her to a nearby house, rang the doorbell, asking for help. The only reply they received was, get off my porch and take her with you. A doctor in Kentucky was driving down the highway when he saw an accident take place. He stopped and gave aid to the injured until the ambulance arrived, and then he went on to work. Later, one of the drivers he helped named him in a lawsuit. Thanks for the help. Thanks for the help. And so Gordon McDonald, a famous writer, he says this, Some time ago, I flew to Minneapolis to speak at a convention. When my taxi cab stopped, I noticed a homeless man lurching between the cars. When he got close to the cab, he fell. I heard the thud. His chin split open, and there was blood everywhere. As I got out and looked, these thoughts went through my mind. A, I'm wearing a brand new suit. I can't afford to get it messed up. B, I've got to speak at a conference in 15 minutes. C, I'm in a strange city. I don't know what to do. And then underneath it all was D, if you're dumb enough to get drunk then I should, Then why should I stop and help you? He continues, I'm ashamed of this. I can't believe a Bible-believing Christian would find those thoughts in the filing cabinet of my soul. Before I could come to my senses, other people came rushing to his help, and I was able to go on to the conference to speak about sensitivity and caring for the needs of other human beings. Thanks for the help, because people Need help. You know, we've missed opportunities. We've all missed opportunities. We're human. We've made mistakes. I've gone out of a store before and I thought, man, I should have stopped and prayed for that person. I should have stopped and said something more encouraging to that person. And, and I know I've missed it a few times and you have to. And sometimes we forget there's a world out there that needs help. And so Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 your attitude, your mindset should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. If ever, outside the Word of God, there was a four-word uh, sentence that made so much sense, it's in the purpose-driven life, and it begins like this, right? You know what it says? It's not about you. It's not about you. How many times have I wanted to tell somebody at the end of worship? Not here, obviously. Uh, not in churches that's listening on the uh, internet as well, none of them. Or have you ever heard, you know, I didn't get anything out of that preaching. Or I didn't get anything out of that worship. Or I didn't get anything out of that teaching. Or I didn't get anything. Well, the, the point is, it's not about you. And if we could just have the mindset of Christ and get our focus and our attitude off of ourselves, how much more we could get accomplished for the Lord because it's really not about us. I've seen so many people become so disgruntled for whatever reason, and they cause problems, and it's always back to the heart of the issue. It's not about us. We focused on ourselves instead of focusing on what the Lord wants us to accomplish, and people need help. So, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 Man, that's good preaching, Paul. Hard to receive, but good preaching. Now, before I get too far, let's stop and just think about this. There are some other verses out there that we like as well. What about God wants to give me the desires of my heart? What about, you know, the dreams that I have and the dreams that God has for me to accomplish? What about my needs? What about my desires? What about me? It's a little bit about me every now and then. Can it be a little bit about me as well? Because I need help as well. Where does all that fit in? How am I supposed to help someone else and still receive, you know, the desires of my heart as well? Famous Assemblies of God missionary to Africa, Morris Williams. Once said, God's will for my best always relates to the rest. I must remember that God's will for me, my choice of work, my spouse, where I live, how I manage my money, it's all related to His will for the rest of humanity who have yet to hear the gospel. How does it all work together? God's will for my life always relates to all the rest. When I get my attitude right, when I get my mindset right, when I get focused and concerned about what he's concerned about, then he begins to bring about his dreams that he gave me and his purposes that he wants me to accomplish. It's all wrapped up together in having the heart and mind of Christ, and people are at the heart of Christ. What did he tell Uh, his disciples in the Gospels in Luke chapter uh, uh, 19, it says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. And so how many times that we've, I think we've been here five, six weeks, and, and Pastor has stood up here at this podium, and he's looking out at the street, and all the cars are passing by, and he reminds us over and over again how busy this street is. People are in need, and we're supposed to be in the people business. And so, as Paul is listing all these instructions to us, he begins to give us four examples of what he's talking about. And the first one is our great example, our great high priest, when he writes, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Verse 6 says, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I'm not going to major on this passage. I mean, for the last two weeks, we've been talking about the passion of Christ. We've been talking about what he went through. We've been talking about the cross. We've been talking about how he went all the way to the grave, and he rose again victorious. And aren't we glad today he took my place? He took your place. He is the great example of what it means to have the mind of him, the mind of Christ. I'm so glad he took my place. There's our example. And so for me, it's important in all of our mistakes and in all of our flaws and in all of my problems and all that I've been through, the fact that he would lower himself and allow himself to be so cruelly mistreated and put on a cross. The old song says, when he was on the cross... I was on his mind, and we are the center of his heart. We're the apple of his eye. We're the sheep of his pasture. His attitude was that you are more important than all the good things that he had in heaven, and so he lowered himself and became like you and I, and he took our sins upon him, and he took our place, and I'm so glad that he rose again victorious, and I want to be like Jesus. I want that attitude. I want the mind of Christ. But oh, how I fell. Oh, how I missed that mark. And so that's why uh, this past Tuesday, we talked about the power of the Holy Spirit working and operating in our lives, transforming us, molding us into the image of his son. And someday we will be like him. And John reminds us that, beloved, we are children of God, It's not been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And then Paul launches into a few instructions and a few promises after he gives us the first example. He says a few things like work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says a few things like God wants to help you accomplish His will for your life. He says, hey, let's work at doing it without complaining. He says, uh, one day you will shine like stars in the universe. And then he comes to his second example and talking about having the attitude and the mindset of Christ. And he lists himself. That's Paul. You know, Paul could do that. I can't list myself for anything except the opposite of that. This is the the guy that's trying. I'm just striving. I'm just doing my best. Paul says, hey, this is Christ. We should be like him. And then follow me as I follow Christ, he would say. In verse 17, he says, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So now we've got Jesus, and now we've got Paul, and some incredible examples. But man, what a legacy to live up to. I mean, I don't, I don't want to go through the things that Paul went through. I, I'd rather not have to go through the stonings. I'd rather skip jail time. I'd, I'd rather skip some of the things that he's had to go through. But wow, what a hero of the faith. And so we go back to some of the stories that we shared earlier. All of those people were in need of help and Few people were willing to help. So it it begs the question, you know, sometimes have you ever felt like, is it really worth being a good Samaritan? I mean All the people that don't seem to accept it or appreciate it, especially in today's world with the stories that you've heard, you you begin to wonder, is it really worth it? Does anyone care? Does anyone really want to make a difference in this world? Does it even matter anymore? Does living a life of service really impact or help anyone? You can work so hard and put so much work and love into something and watch people walk away. And it just rips at your heart. And is it really worth it anymore? The number of years ago, we, uh, I worked at a church, and every week we fed over 200 people. We did a couple of outreaches, and we had 2,000 people in each of these outreaches come to the church. We gave free food away. We gave clothes away. We gave uh, school books away and all all kinds of backpacks and stuff, and people came from all over the places, and the Word of, of God went forth, and we gave an opportunity for people to receive Christ and to see lives changed, and it was so beautiful to see all the people coming through the line and receiving all these things, but When we came to church again that next week for Sunday morning, we didn't see 2,000 people in the church building that morning because not everyone wants to really see their life changed for the better. So many hardened hearts, so many people that are hurting, and they want to hang on to that anger. They want to hang on to that mindset and that life that they've been living, and they're missing out on the life that Christ wants to give them. And so we've got to work a little harder at having the mind of Christ and having the attitude that Christ had. Because the result is few people, so few people really experience the joy of what it really means to serve, to really help someone else. And yet Paul says this is the very thing that we should be focused on in doing all our lives. And so he gives two examples. He lists Christ and then he lists himself. Great examples of pouring out their lives for someone else. Now, I could get a little argumentative, and I could say, well, that's Jesus. I mean, Jesus healed people. Jesus raised people from the dead. Jesus fed people. Jesus did all these miracles. And then Paul comes along, and he's maybe the greatest you know, person in the New Testament besides Jesus, and he, all these books are about him, and, and, and over half of Acts is all about him, and it's just one thing after another, and what an incredible example to live up to, and, and I can't really do that, and it's almost, it's almost like Paul is thinking, yep, I know what you're thinking. I've got you. I've got you. I know that's two hard examples to live up to, so let me give you a couple of regular people. Let me give you a couple of guys that maybe you can identify with. Maybe a couple of guys that you might be able to relate to a little bit easier. Here are some quote-unquote regular guys. And so Paul next mentions a young man by the name of Timothy. Timothy. Timothy was obviously an incredible preacher. He was obviously an incredible minister. But let me ask you just a couple of questions real fast. How many people did Timothy heal? How many people rose from the dead because of Timothy? Well, the answer is, we don't know, because it's just not written. doesn't mean that he didn't. doesn't mean that he did. But in my mind and in my understanding and in my human way of thinking, he might be just a little bit more easier to relate to. So let's talk about Timothy. It says this in uh, uh, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive uh, news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things are going with me. It's interesting to note that Paul is in prison while he is writing this letter. He's in Rome in prison while he's writing this letter. He doesn't know if he's gonna be executed sometime soon or if he's going to be released sometime soon. He has no idea. And yet, all the while he's in prison, not knowing what is going to happen, he's still more concerned about other people in their situation than he is about his own situation. And so he begins to talk. To the Philippians about Timothy. The first thing he says about Timothy is basically this. He says, Timothy had a servant's mind. Verse 20, he says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He says, I couldn't find anyone else nearly as concerned or nearly as willing as Timothy was. So I'm going to send to you. Timothy. Now, if you go to the book of Romans and you count the number of people that Paul mentions in the book of Romans, he mentions no less than 26 other Christians in the book of Romans. And evidently, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he chose Timothy over these other 26. Might it be because he had a servant's heart and a servant's mind even more than all the others? And so he was willing, and Paul chose him out of so many other people that he could have chose. I wonder if they raised their hand and said, hey, Paul, I want to go. Or maybe Timothy was the only one. We talked about so many memorable verses as we begin this talk tonight, and I love the extreme statement. Here is my favorite one of the book of Philippians. 121 says this, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What an extreme statement. If I live, I go on doing something for God. If I happen to die, I die doing something for God, and I see him in the next breath. What an extreme statement. So let's contrast two verses. Don't get them mixed up. 121 and 221. 121 says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 221 says this, everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So the reality is, there's a question that's being asked, which verse do we live in? Which verse do I want to live in? Which of these verses means more to me? Where do I want my life to reside? Because we know as we live for Christ, there's no riding the fence. It's all or nothing. It's one side or the other. The huge contrast between the two, I want to work for Christ and live to the extreme and find that life and life abundantly, what it means to live for him. And so Paul, his example made a huge life a huge uh, impact on Timothy's life, and so he had a servant's mind. We don't want to get too busy not focusing on what God wants us to focus on. Number two, Timothy had a servant's training. Verse 22 says, you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he served with me in the work of the gospel. A story is told of a popular nightclub singer The entertainer visited a pastor and explained that he had been saved and wanted to serve the Lord. He asked, what should I do next? And the pastor said, well, I suggest you unite with a good church and start growing. And the pastor asked him, is your wife saved? He replied, no, she isn't, but I hope to win her soon. But do I have to wait? I mean, I'd like to do something for God now. And the pastor explained, no, you don't have to wait to work for God. You need to get busy in a church and use your talents for Christ. And the man said, but don't you know who I am? I'm a big-time performer. Everyone knows me. I could reach thousands of people. I want to start my own organization. I want to make recordings. I want to appear before big crowds. The pastor warned, if you go too far too fast, you may hurt yourself in your testimony. The right place to start working for God is in your home and in your church. God will then open places of service for you as he sees you are ready. Meanwhile, get into God's word, serve in church, and grow. And you might have guessed, the man didn't take the pastor's advice. He took his own organization. He started out on his own. He had big dreams, but he had shallow roots. The true story finally ended as less than a year later, this man lost his testimony, his career, and his family. He disappeared from the public scene. He became bankrupt, not only financially, but also spiritually, because he never allowed himself to plant real roots, and to grow. And Paul said Timothy has proved himself. Timothy is trained. Timothy's got a servant's heart, and Timothy has a background of working for me. He's fruitful in the ministry, and he had won over Paul to thinking of Timothy as his own son. I want to be like that. I want to be that faithful servant. Number three, Timothy had a servant's reward. Verse 23 says, I hope, therefore, to send them as soon as I see how things go with me. What's the reward? Well, heaven for one thing. But man, what an incredible testimony to have somebody like Paul write such incredible things about you. He's a good and faithful servant. And he had the joy of serving and getting to serve under Paul. And Paul mentions his name no less than 24 times in his writings. What another privilege, though, was that Paul was able to rest just a little bit in the spirit and say, I know the work is going to go forward. No matter what happens to me, Timothy is going to carry on the work. What a great feeling that must have been for him. And I'm going to move quickly here. Number four, the, the fourth example that Paul gives us. After talking about Timothy, he talks about a man named Epaphroditus. Verse 25, it says this. I think it's necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the eager to send him, so that when... He, uh, you see him again, you may be glad, that I may ha- and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. It's interesting that Epaphroditus' name literally means charming, and he is a charming example of what a real Christian is. And Paul couldn't say enough about the qualities of Epaphroditus. He says, he's my brother. He says, he's my fellow worker. He says, he's a fellow soldier. And Paul's not just giving him compliments. He really means these things. Paul says that Epaphroditus is a balanced Christian. Some churches... Some Christians, they major in one or the area, uh, or the area. Some churches like to say we're a fellowship kind of church. Some churches like to say we're a worshiping kind of church. Some churches like to say we're a discipleship kind of church. And the reality is we need to be working in all phases of ministry. Dr. Ironside, he tells a story about a group of believers who thought only of fellowship in their church. Evangelism and worship and missions and other important aspects of a balanced Christian life were mostly left out. And he writes, they had little concern for reaching the lost. So they hung a sign in front of the church that read, Jesus only. But before long, the wind had blown away some of the letters, and the sign eventually read this, Us only. That's not what we want. As you watch pastors stand up here and look out the doors just above your heads, you're wondering, where's he looking at? And you can just see these cars driving by because people need help. And so Paul says the qualities of Epaphroditus, number one, he says he is the one who volunteered to come to Paul from the church because he had a heart for his leadership. He had a heart for his pastor. He was concerned about the welfare of his leader. We need more people like that, concerned about the welfare of our leadership. Number two, he had a heart for the church. He wanted a healthy church. He wanted people to be concerned, and be concerned about each other. Number three, he had a heart for missions. He willingly went, and he became ill and almost died from the illness in being a missionary. Number four, he had a willing servant's heart. Whatever was needed, didn't matter if he was great at it, didn't matter if he was not an expert at it, he was willing to do whatever he was asked to do, and he did it. And when I look at these two men, I think, I want to be like that. Those are two men that I can relate to, and those are two men that we need more of in our church. It's evident as you read the letter to the Philippians that Paul has a real love. He has a real joy in thinking about this church. He really has a lot of um, feelings towards them of, of, of positivity. And he finds himself thinking about them and concerned about their circumstance. And he begins to worry about them worrying about him in jail. And one of my favorite commentators says this, one words, but he says, It's worth asking, am I the kind of Christian who brings joy to my pastor's mind when he thinks about me? The church certainly brought joy to Paul's mind. Timothy brought joy to Paul's mind. Epaphroditus brought joy to Paul's mind. And what kind of a church could we be if when our pastor thinks about each of us as individuals, it brings joy to his mind. It's the kind of church that we need to be. And I close with this tonight. And one of my favorite little devotionals, you can pick one up just about anywhere. Now, the word for you today, some time ago, it said this in the daily devotional. It says, no two ways about it. If you love the Lord, you'll love people and lay down your life, your comforts, your rights, your schedule, etc., for them. Read the Gospels. You can't escape the fact the Lord's first love is always for people, people of all races and all situations, whether powerful or not, acceptable or not, young and beautiful or covered with sores, even children. How many destinies were changed when he stopped and stooped and blessed them? The early church understood this. They shared everything. They even were willing to sell their possessions to take care of one another. Rather than thinking of their own needs, they thought of others first. Amazingly, their own needs were taken care of in the process. That's how it works. Their willingness to humbly serve one another also brought to them favor with outsiders who were then introduced to God's love. When you give yourself to God, you become committed to what He's committed to, loving people. Bruce Wilkinson points out, God didn't come to the Garden of Eden to tend prize-winning grapes. He came to tend his children. Christ didn't come to erect public buildings, shore up retirement accounts, write a literary masterpiece, or win a spot on the scoreboard. No, he came for hurting people, to put their lives back on track, to give them joy. It's okay to be goal-oriented, purpose-driven, time-conscious, hard-working, a real go-getter. But don't forget that the most important something is others. Jesus didn't forget. Let's pray tonight. Let's bow our heads and let's begin to seek God for just a few minutes. This is a great church. You're here on a Wednesday night. That tells me so much about you and your commitment to Christ in the middle of the week, and it's raining outside. But you know what? God is wanting us to move to an even deeper place in Him, to find ourselves saying, Lord, I want to be a willing servant. Give me a servant's heart. God, may it bring joy to your heart when you think about me. May you continue to bring more and more unity, Lord, in our church and all aspects of ministry here. Lord, may you encourage our pastors, encourage our leadership. God, as we move forward for you and for your glory. God, give us your mind. Help us to be concerned about what you're concerned about. I thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name.